God inspired the disciple John to write words of scripture, and the gospel of John has one purpose. John 20, verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. That is the the thesis, that is the purpose statement of why John, under the Spirit's inspiration, wrote the gospel of John. It's all about believing in Jesus as God in the flesh and as Messiah, and that results in joy, in believing in everything of who Jesus is in himself and who he is for us. And so we're in a series called Encountering Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we looked at the first two chapters thus far. Today we're going to be in chapter 3. Um, I don't even know how to begin a sermon on John chapter 3. It is absolutely magnificent and stunning and just precious text that God so graciously has given to his people. What you see in John 3 is the heart of the gospel. If you want to see one text that just clearly shows what the good news of Jesus is, it's in John 3. It, it really, if you look at it, John 3 is the heart of God. Of what is God about? What is the heart of God What is his purpose and how does he accomplish it? You see it in just stunning display of glory in John chapter 3. And what's so amazing is this, this overwhelming text is a conversation. It's a man named Nicodemus who is encountering Jesus. And so we can learn so much about who God is and who we're supposed to be in Christ And what I love is that it's all in the context of relationship, of Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus. So John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, here's how it begins. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with you him. So this conversation that Jesus has is with a a Pharisee. Now he was a religious elite. Think of the ultimate religious insider. Nicodemus was highly educated. He probably had many, many passages of the Old Testament memorized. I mean, I'm talking like he knew the Old Testament in ways that people today really can't begin to fathom his level of education, how it studied. He was, he was basically an aristocrat, like his status. He was, it says, a ruler, which means he was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men that ruled all the Jews. Now, it's not like today. Don't think the Senate. The Senate has the lower house of Congress, and it has, it has the courts, and it has the president, and there's checks and balances. This was not like that. This was 70 men who literally ruled the Jews. So these were political but social 
but also were religious leaders. These were the elites of society. And I know that when we think of Pharisee, we think of a bad word like, oh, Pharisee. You have to understand in the ancient world in the first century, every Jewish mama could only hope that one of their daughters would marry a Pharisee. It was like, if only she could marry a Pharisee and be respected and have status and know God and be zealous for obeying the word. Now, granted, yes, they obeyed it according to their own traditions, and they miss a whole point. But in the eyes of society, I'm trying to paint a picture. The way that Nicodemus was understood and the way that he was seen in his context, he did not need anything. He was not missing anything. Comfort, status, money, prestige. He had it all. And yet... He knew he was missing something. He probably couldn't quite put his finger on it. But he was drawn to Jesus, and he calls him rabbi. He calls him teacher. And he's like, I know that you're from God. You must be some prophet, or you're a miracle worker. So Nicodemus is acknowledging that Jesus does miracles and teaches the word profoundly, and yet Nicodemus does not believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. He does not believe that Jesus is worthy of worship. Nicodemus, for all of his education and status and religion, was lost and desperate for a savior. And he goes at night because he doesn't really want his peers to know that he's hanging out and having conversations with Jesus. But whether he realized it at this moment or later, we'll see later in John, I believe that Nicodemus did come to faith because you see that towards the end of the book. But I don't know what happened to John or to Nicodemus on this day in his heart, but I do know that he encountered the living God when he encountered Jesus. So let's read this encounter. You might think, we're reading the whole thing? Yes, that's how we roll at Renewal Church. We read the Bible. There is power in the word of God just being read. John 3, beginning with verse 3. So this is how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpents in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not, con- is not condemned But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates The light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, this is a absolutely awe-inspiring text that you inspired. Jesus, these are your words as you encountered Nicodemus. Just like your spirit must blow so that we can be born of the Spirit. We pray that in this moment that we would feel the heaviness, the weight of your Spirit. That we would have a greater awareness of your presence right here with us, God. That we would not approach this text with, with the notions of, oh, I already know this one. But then may we be hungry for you to hear your word and to be gripped and transformed by it. In this text, we see your heart, God. But we need to see it with our eyes of faith. Open our eyes. Grip our hearts. And we let go of the things that would keep us from you. And do it only you can do. Do the miraculous today, Jesus. And we pray it for the praise of your name, for you alone are worthy. Amen. This is an awe-inspiring text. As we were saying earlier, it reveals the very heart of God. And so just like Nicodemus encountered Jesus, that is the prayer that we would encounter him. Um, let me give you a couple of like discussions Disclaimers as we jump into John 3, because I know that this is a diverse church. Um, 
If you were in a Presbyterian church, then everyone there would just agree on certain theological positions, and there's no discussion or debate. If you were in a, a charismatic church or a word of faith or pick a description that you want, everyone there would have a particular flavor or understanding of theology, and there would be no, no discussions there either. If you were at a typical Baptist church or whatever, you, you pick your camp, you pick the denomination or background, in, in most churches, there doesn't tend to be a whole lot of diversity. And that's just pretty normal today. And yet what God is doing here is really remarkable. And it's really inspiring. That there really is quite a bit of church diversity and just background. And when you have a people that can find unity within their diversity, that is glorifying to Jesus. And so... When, when I'm looking at John 3, I already know some of you that come from a particular theological persuasion are ready to hear what you expect from that particular point of view. And there's others of you in the room that are actually on the exact opposite end of that spectrum theologically, and you're ready to hear how I'm going to handle the text. And, and what, I, what I want you to do today is just, can you just breathe? can you just exhale? Can we let the Spirit of God speak through his word? John 3 is deep, and I'm going to do my best to just begin to scratch the surface, and I'm not even going to do a very good job of that. Here's the way I see John 3. It is like a gold mine. But if you want the treasure, so you have to go down, get dirty, and dig to mine that gold, to mine that treasure. And so what I hope happens today is that you'll have a hunger to go dig, to go unearth the treasures that are in John 3. And I'm giving you full disclosure up front. I cannot exposit every verse in this text. It would take hours, like multiple sermons to do that. That's your job. On Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and every day of your life to search the scriptures and to go deeper and to know God more intimately. And so it's not possible from one feeding time on a Sunday morning, but if I can, by God's grace, with his help, inspire you to want to go study it and mine those treasures, then it will have been a great Sunday. What I want to do is not lose the context. If we go too deeply into any one verse, man, you would just forget that we're in the middle of a conversation here between Jesus and Nicodemus, and so I don't want to lose the context. So I want to make sure that we, we're following that and that we will see the glory of God as he is displaying his heart in this text. John 3 is organized around four truths. So if you're taking notes, it's time to get your pen ready. There's four primary truths that you see, and there's a movement, a flow of thought. And again, we can go a lot deeper, but you'll do that on your own, I pray, this week and the weeks to follow. But here's the first 
primary truth that we're uncovering what the heart of God one is. We're seeing the grand purpose. So first we're seeing God's grand purpose. And we see it right away. Nicodemus starts with pleasantries. He starts with, oh, so I know that you're from God, but I don't know who you really are, but he's, he's trying to be kind and complimenting Jesus for doing miracles. And so Nicodemus is trying to like, you know what it's like to ease into a conversation with someone, someone that you don't know really well, then you start talking about sports or the weather or whatever. You're trying to kind of ease in. Jesus doesn't waste time. He doesn't do pleasantries. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. And do we hear a response to Nicodemus? It's almost like Jesus didn't even hear him. It's like, okay, Nicodemus, I don't know why you think you're here. You have some agenda on what you want to accomplish with this conversation, but I have God's agenda for you. And you're about to encounter the living God. And Jesus in verse 3 does no pleasantries, kind of ignores what he says, and he says, here's what's up. Unless you are born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can imagine Nicodemus was like, what? What did I say? Like, I, I was just saying, hello. And then Jesus is like, unless you are born again, you cannot even see, let alone enter in. You can't even see the kingdom of God. It's as though Jesus was saying, hey, Nick, so if we're going to talk, like, I don't have time to waste, bro. So let's just get right to the heart of God and his grand purpose, which is the kingdom. You must be born again if you're to see the kingdom of God. And this theme is repeated again later in John. We'll, we'll get to that. But in John 18, I'll give you a brief summary of what's going to happen later in this same book. John 18, 36 and 37, Jesus is being interrogated in his kangaroo court by the governor Pilate. And Jesus answers Pilate, the Roman governor. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate says, so you are a king. He's like, oh, so, so Jesus, so you, you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. You hear that? He says, I am a king, and I have a kingdom, not of this world. And for this purpose, I was born, and I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So in John 18, the conversation with Pilate, Jesus is telling him, oh yes, I am the sovereign. I am the king with all authority, but my kingdom doesn't look the way you think it looks. It doesn't look like Rome. It doesn't look like other kingdoms or nations of this world. It's not of this world. It is of people that have been absolutely transformed formed by the Holy Spirit. But you're seeing this grand purpose of God, of why Jesus came. It's to establish his kingdom. Like that's why he came. 
Now, again, I, I mentioned earlier that, man, this text is really deep and it's multifaceted. It is a word there is manifold. Manifold refers to multi-sided. Like if you go to Ephesians 3, it says that God's wisdom, his manifold wisdom is being displayed through the church. Manifold means multi-sided, like a prism. That's one prism with lots of sides to it. And so think of it as different layers. And so that's what you see in John 3. And so when you're talking about God's grand purpose being seen through a kingdom, you see here in John 3 that that is really multifaceted. Like what it, what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. And so what it means, one, I'll give you a list of like five things from this text of realities of what it, what it means to be in his kingdom. One is you have the new birth. He said it right here in verse three. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. We saw that two weeks ago in John 1, in the prologue, verse 13. It says that you must be born not of the will of man, but born of God. That's John 1, 13. And so being born from above, being born of God, a word for that is regeneration. That's used in Titus 3, verse 5. If you're wondering where that word comes from, a biblical word to be regenerated means to be brought from death to life, to be made new. No longer old, now you're a new creation. So you have new birth with a new nature, a new heart. Well, it says in verse 8 that you must be born of the Spirit. And so everyone that is in the kingdom of God has experienced a new birth. But also everyone in God's kingdom has experienced belief in Jesus. Belief. Because it says in verse 15, verse 16, verse 18, mentions repeatedly believing. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And so he told Nicodemus, you have not received my testimony. You don't believe. You're not in God's kingdom, Nicodemus. You have the religion, the status, but you're lost. You're in darkness. You're not in my kingdom. You don't believe. And so those kingdom have new birth. They have belief in Jesus. Also, they have life in Jesus. Verses 15, 16, and 17. This theme of life is very prominent. A supernatural life, eternal life, he says, should not perish but have eternal life. This is a supernatural life imparted by Jesus. We're united to him, one in Christ, and this results in this life that we have, real joy with hearts that are awakened. And so we have life in Christ. Jesus is salvation. He is our life, and we're saved through him, it says in verse 17 that we just read. We also have those in his kingdom also have light in Jesus. We have new birth, belief in Jesus, life in Jesus. We also have light in Jesus. Verses 19, 20, and 21 talk about light. The light has come into the world. This is just like in John 1. We picked that up from two weeks ago in the prologue. 
where Jesus is the light that has come into the world and pushes away the darkness. So you see it again in chapter 3, that he is the light. And so those who belong to his kingdom are no longer in darkness. But it also says that we've experienced the love of God. So we experience his love. John 3.16 is an amazing verse that describes literally the heart of God. For God so loved. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It was love that moved God. And what you're seeing here is those that are in God's kingdom that have been born again are experiencing his love. And so you see here this grand purpose, God's ultimate goal, his end of where he's moving all of human history, why he created in the first place is to create a kingdom of worshipers that what? That have experienced the new birth, that experience belief in Jesus, who have life in Jesus, who live in the light of Jesus, who have tasted the love of God. And then we are then displaying his glory to creation. So we see God's grand purpose is for us to love him, to enjoy him, to worship him as part of his kingdom. But we also, number two, second truth in this, this amazing text is we see the gravest problem. If you're taking notes, yes, I'm alliterating, so track with me. We do have the gravest problem. Now, when I say gravest, I mean that in every sense of the word. Like you can say, oh, the gravest problem could be like this most serious problem, your biggest problem. But I'm talking about the grave. Like our problem is connected to the grave itself. Now, I don't know where you're at today, whether you're a teenager or whether you're a bit older than that or wherever you're at in your life on what you think your problem is. Maybe you think that your problem is that you need a boyfriend. And I'm serious, like that's some of you, or a girlfriend, or you want to be married, and you think that your biggest problem is that you're not, or your biggest problem is financial, or your biggest problem is your marriage, that's not where you want it to be, or your biggest problem is your future career and don't know what that's going to look like, or your biggest problem is physical health or sickness or a loved one that passed away. I, I don't know what you're really facing today or what you would see as your gravest problem. But the Bible is very clear on what our ultimate problem, our gravest problem really is. John 3.16 is absolutely amazing. It says, God loved the world. Therefore, he was moved to take action. So he gave his son as a sacrifice so that those who believe complete trust in him, in his once for all sacrifice on the cross, would not perish. It doesn't it say so that they would not suffer not having a girlfriend. It doesn't say that. 
the ultimate problem or gravest problem, he says, he did that. He sent Jesus so that we would not perish, but instead his people would experience eternal life. So our gravest problem is eternal perishing. So that we would not perish. I mean, there's the issue. There's the problem. And you see what that looks like in verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's huge. You're born into this world condemned already. You are conceived in sin. We have a sinful nature that we have inherited from our father Adam, and we pass it on to our children. All of humanity is sinful. The word for that is totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean that we are as evil as we could be. There's a thing called common grace that God gives even to unbelievers, and he does curb human evil and sinfulness. So praise God for that. But when I'm talking about having a heart that is totally depraved, what I mean is our desires, our evil, our every inclination left to ourselves, we deserve to be separated from God's love because of our sin. And if you think that that's not true, listen to verse 19. I'll read it again. And this is the judgment. So God in his cosmic court is declaring a judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. He's saying that left to ourselves, the normal human condition, the normal human heart left to itself in its natural condition is depraved. It's evil. It says that we prefer darkness over light. We run from light. We want to keep our sin hidden. It's in verse 21, not be exposed. This is who we are. We are sinful. Our hearts are inclined towards evil. So left to ourselves, we're already condemned from birth. What we need is a savior. And if you think, well, what is the essence of this darkness? What is the essence of sin? What exactly is sin? I'll give you a simple definition. Sin is when you desire anything more than God. Treasuring, enjoying anything under the sun more than you treasure, enjoy God himself. That is the essence. And so every single sin that we could possibly do at its roots is because we're finding more joy, more pleasure in it rather than in the presence of God. So the essence of sin is idolatry. It's having idols that we worship. It's wanting to be in darkness. Like you see here, Jesus telling Nicodemus, you are so religious. You think you've got it all together and yet you are in darkness. Darkness. And later, this same gospel writer, John, would write another book called Revelation, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you an excerpt from Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11. He describes his God's wrath being poured 
full strength into his cup of anger. Like this language is scary, man. It's like God's wrath, his full strength poured into his cup of anger. And who is this for? Who is this cup of wrath and anger? It's for people who worship false idols that don't worship God, those who worship false gods, who are bowing down to Satan instead of bowing down to Jesus. And it says that they will be tormented with fire and sulfur. And the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. So there is a theological position that exists called annihilationism that says that when a person dies, they are annihilated. And so there is no hell. Hell is just figurative. It's not literal. There's no real hell. There's no actual judgment at the end. It's just, you just die. It's just, you're unconscious. You're just annihilated. You're just gone, annihilated. That is not what the Bible says. It describes a physical, conscious, bodily, tormenting that says that there's no rest. Just like God promises eternal life, this perishing is also eternal. And I say that with an incredibly heavy heart. There's a reason why he told us to go. There's a reason why we want to plant more churches. And from day one, when we began this church less than two years ago, we'll have two years in April, um, I told our launch community, I said, listen, I did not leave the Middle East to come here to see one church planted. I said, no offense, but that's just too small. I want to see many churches planted here locally and globally. I want to be reaching more people and growing them in healthy churches. And so I want my life to be all about seeing people know the love of God. And we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come because there is an absolute tension. And a lot of what you see in John 3, the same themes are carried into chapter 5 and chapter 8. And it's just carried throughout chapter 6 in particular um, on this incredible tension, on this mystery of how God is sovereign and that we are accountable. And you see both in this text side by side. And we don't have time to open that box today. We'll open it soon in this series, I promise. But for today, well, what I can assure you is that we are called to live in this mystery and we can't answer the why questions, but what we can do is say that we have heard, we do know God's love and we are called to go. So any theology that minimizes the call to go is anathema. It's evil. And we need to reject any theology that says that we don't actually have to go. This text is absolutely sobering because it's describing our problem is the wrath of God. Like, if you don't know Jesus, if you're here and you are rejecting God, you have to know something. Your biggest problem right now is God. That's your problem. 
the wrath of God, God's judgment on you. And you will either pay for it for yourself for eternity or Jesus' work on the cross will have paid for it on, in those few moments because he is eternal and he could pay for your sins. And so it's going to be paid for. There will be a reckoning. All sin will be paid for. This is the judgment, which you see here in verse 18. Our greatest problem, our gravest problem is our sinful nature that we desire the darkness. We are dead spiritually. We need a miracle. We need a rescuer. And so John 3 is describing this grand purpose of God, but our gravest problem. Number three, we see the glorious plan. We do see this glorious plan plan right here in John 3. So his grand purpose is to display his glory with a people that worship him, that know his love. That's his grand purpose. The gravest problem is that we don't love God. We don't. Not left to ourselves, we won't. We get bored or tired of him. We don't enjoy him. It's sin. It's idolatry. That's our problem, our sinful nature. The gravest problem, but now thirdly, we see this glorious plan. Now, I can tell you what this plan is not. God's glorious plan is not religious effort. It's not. Your rescue from your sin is not more effort. Try harder. Remember the context. Who's talking here? Jesus and Nicodemus a religious leader, a elite, had the Old Testament literally memorized. Um, by any human standard, Nicodemus was just fine. By any human measurement, he, he didn't need a savior. He, had, he was religious. He, he, was a, he was a leader. He was a good person by human standards. And yet... What we find with Nicodemus is that he was looking to his moral efforts, his good life, his biblical knowledge, being a religious person to save him. And I've seen this firsthand in the Muslim world where their whole system, the the five pillars of Islam, with doing your prayers five times a day and on doing the pilgrimage to Mecca once in a lifetime if you can, and giving 2%. Imagine that, 2% only in Ramadan. So all they ask is give 2% of your money for one month out of the whole year. And Jesus says, give 10% every single week. Like, there's a much higher call. But, but regardless, they have that. And so you have, you have all of confess that Muhammad is the prophet and all of these pillars, all of these things that you have to do Observe Ramadan, fast in that one month. It's all about earning points. It's all about earning credits and earning favor with God. And and the reality is that we shouldn't be too hard on our Muslim counterparts because the truth is that a lot of Americans have the same mentality. We might not think of it that way, but you think, well, hey, I, I go to church, that's points. I put a few dollars in the offering bucket. That's points. Or here's, here's a big one. I help in the kids' ministry. 
Now that, then some bonus points. It's like, now you're over the top. Now you can just like do whatever you want this week because you're good. Like you already have extra points for the week. And, and we laugh, but deep in our soul, we, we can so approach religion and we can approach Jesus with, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to sacrifice all these things for you. I'm going to sacrifice Sunday morning, Jesus. I'm giving it to you. I'm such a good person. And then we approach God with all of our sacrifices that we've given up for him. And then we say, Jesus, give me what I want. I want to cash in my points. It's time to pay up. Why did this person get sick? Or why, why did this job not work out? Or why did this happen this way? Or why, did, why is my child messed up? Like, or whatever it is. And we think, no, God, this can't be. This is not right. I serve you. I sacrifice for you. You owe me now. I'm cashing in. Give me what I actually want. Because if we're honest, oftentimes it's not actually Jesus. It's not the presence of Jesus. It's something else. And we just use him to get to what we really want. And our religious efforts give us a sense of status from other people. It gives us significance or it brings us a measure of self-earned hope. And we become our own saviors. When the truth is that whatever you can sacrifice or whatever God calls you to give up for him, is it really a sacrifice? And if God is taking things away from you, he's only taking things away from you because he loves you and he wants you to have maximum joy, which is found in one place, his presence. You get God. What more do you need? what's going to give you more joy or hope or purpose? Like there's nowhere else. It is in Christ alone. If we're looking to our religious efforts, what will happen is we will be filled with pride or anxiety or oftentimes insecurity and you'll be miserable. And in the process, everyone around you is going to also be miserable. So Jesus tells them in John 3, verse 3, Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Without the new birth, you cannot belong to God. You cannot worship God. You won't love God. And when he says being born of water and spirit, he is talking about Ezekiel 36. It's a reference to this Old Testament prophet about 600 years before the birth of Jesus And here's what it says, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And this says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you 
a new, it says, heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Here's the key. This is super important. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you. It's huge. This new spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's the spirit who comes in and regenerates, makes us new. And then we respond with faith, with love, with strength to be able to want to obey. Left to ourselves, we don't want to obey. We want the darkness. And so this grand plan that we're talking about, this glorious plan of Jesus, is the new birth. It's regeneration, making us new, making us clean, and having the strength and the desire to actually follow him, to want to worship him. Religion cannot do this. Religion is powerless. So religion can't do the miraculous. Why in verses 6 and 7, it is all about the work of the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And so humans that are sinful in nature, so the flesh refers to our sinful nature. We give birth to more people that have a sinful nature. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So those that have been born of the Spirit have a new spiritual nature. And I love verse 8 describing the work of the Spirit. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the word for spirit in in Greek is pneuma, and it has this, like, breath that flows in your mouth, like, pneuma. Just like in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word ruach is for spirit. And so both words, you have this breath or wind that flows through your mouth and saying the word. And so in both, both Old and New Testament, when you see the word breath or wind or spirit, it's the same word. It's pneuma. And so you have to look at the context and say, oh, does this mean spirit? Does this mean breath or wind? Because it's the exact same word. So context is key when reading the Bible. So Jesus is doing a play on words here and talking about the Holy Spirit and calling him a wind that is blowing sovereignly as he wishes. He he is willing to blow where he wills and no one can control, no one can figure out what he's doing. We just see the effects. So the Spirit of God is hovering and blowing and regenerating people that were dead are being brought back to life, and we see the effects of it with men who love their wives, with men who give up pornography, with young men that I've seen that were hardcore gamers giving up gaming, which is like massive for Gen Z, just saying. You see actual transformation that's evidence of the Spirit who is doing his, his regenerating, transforming work, and we just 
respond and receive. We can't make ourselves be born as much as we can't make ourselves be born again. The Spirit does this miraculous work, and then we respond in ways that are absolutely glorious to God. The dead spiritually being raised to life. And so those that are not regenerous, the words unregenerous, those that have not been made new, they're unable to love God. They're blind, so they can't see his glory, and they don't value Jesus as their treasure. So those that are not born again, are unable to say with the Apostle Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Only someone born of the Spirit of God could ever say that. I love verses 9 through 12. It's almost comical how Nicodemus just doesn't get it. Like he's trying and he can't understand. And Jesus says, I thought you were a teacher, man. What's going on? Like, how do you not know the Bible? But he just, he just couldn't get it. And he explains his plan further in verses 13 through 15, mentioning that he has descended from heaven as the son of man. And then he references, just like Moses lifted up a serpent, I must be lifted up. You're thinking, what is that? Well, if you haven't read Numbers 21 in a while, let me get you up to speed. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. You have a story there where the Israelites were in the wilderness, and they were not happy with God. Like what they say is like, it's shocking when they actually say it out loud. They complain, and they say, why, Moses, have you brought us out of Egypt, out of slavery? He says, to die in the wilderness. For there's no food, no water. Listen to this. And we loathe this worthless food. You know what that food was? Bread from heaven. Like, oh my goodness. They had the audacity. Freed from slavery. It's raining bread from heaven. And they're like, we loathe, we hate this worthless food. Now, how do you think God felt about that? Like, just a guess. He wasn't happy. Just like parents, when your kids complain, when you cook a meal, and they don't want to eat it, and then you, you see them scraping into the trash can, like, oh, I, I can't even tell you, like, that makes me so mad. It's like, I bought that. And then we had to order it. Like, we don't go to HEB anymore. We had to place the order on our phone to get that food. <laughs> and, and then we had to, I say we, Bonnie had to cook it. <laughs> and then just like the ingratitude. And parents, you know that it was just, it's infuriating. In the cosmic sense, this is God, the, the T-O'd parent, Right? What, what does he do? He sends snakes. It's judgment to discipline his children, to spank them. But ultimately, this is snakes. And so they're biting the people, and they're dying. And so what happens is Moses makes a bronze serpent, and he lifts it up on a pole. And everyone that was looking down at their pain 
being bitten, died. But everyone else that lifted their eyes up and looked at that bronze serpent lived, was healed. And so Jesus says that that points to him. That serpent represents Satan, represents sin. He who knew no sin became sin. That we would become the righteousness of God. And we're called to look up and see the sacrifice so that we could be set free. This is the glorious plan of God. People being made new receiving a new nature. I've, I've titled this sermon, Encountering a Holy Air Current. That's what it is. It's encountering the Holy Spirit, his holy air current who blows on us because religion is powerless. We must be born again. May he blow here. Make us new that we receive the gospel, that we would have our eyes opened to the glory of Jesus. And as we close, I know it's been a long sermon. I'm trying, but it, it's an amazing text. Number four, we have the greatest pleasure. We've seen the grand purpose, our gravest problem, this glorious plan, and we see the greatest pleasure, which is summarized in John 3.16. For God so loved He loves you. And that's the main takeaway from this whole thing. He made you because he loves you. And he loves you because he loves you. Not because you can earn it. It's just free grace that he bought with his own blood. And we can experience the greatest pleasure, which is the love of God and I can promise you this with this greatest pleasure, you won't get bored of God. In heaven for eternity, we're going to be worshiping him. So I hope you're not bored of him now because if you are, you're not going to like heaven because heaven is all about enjoying God forever. But we're never going to exhaust it. It is the greatest pleasure. So we come back full circle where we began, this grand purpose. God is at work and bringing dead people to life that would believe in him, worship him, and make him known to the nations for his glory.